are going to remember where you were right now for the rest of your life. How can you not be romantic about baseball? You're listening to On the Mound with Max Tanzer, Matt Salsler, and Tommy Muma on BIC Radio. Thank you, Lucas, and hello, and welcome to On the Mound, a show covering all things baseball. I'm Matt Sossler, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Max Tanzer and Tommy Muma. We have a lot to cover today on the opening weekend of spring training, including a preview of the NL West and an interview with ESPN's Carl Ravitch, as well as, again, some spring training talk. But for now, let's get started with our leadoff topic, the transaction roundup. Tommy, the Yankees just announced that Luis Severino will be shut down for the foreseeable future. What are your thoughts on how this will impact the Yankees' rotation? Definitely concerning um, because obviously he's had some problems with, uh, you know, forearm injuries in the past. Um, And he also had a loose body in his elbow, which is very concerning because, you know, you start to think maybe Tommy John because Brian Cashman said that he doesn't know at this point whether it's serious or he could be back in a few days. Aaron Boone says he's unsure of whether he'll be ready for the start of the season. Personally, I'm not sure that he will be ready. Um, but I'm very hopeful at this point. But I don't know. I'm I'm not feeling good about it, but I'm I'm hopeful. It's definitely not what you want to see, especially with Paxton going out now. Severino. That's two of the key guys in your rotation. Obviously, it makes it a little bit more worth it for Garrett Cole if it wasn't already. But I'd say it's not not the best look in the world. You guys have some depth. You can throw Jordan Montgomery in there. Maybe Debbie Garcia is going to get an opportunity to step up big. Tommy, a question for you is who do you see filling in now for Paxton being out? And that opens up another potential spot if Severino's out for more than a couple days. Well, you said I definitely think Jordan Montgomery will be in there. I would love to see Debbie Garcia, but I don't know if he's ready yet. I don't think he's either, yeah. Yeah, only a few starts in AAA, I think, last year. So I think he needs a little more time to develop. But one thing that looks really good right now is keeping Jay Happ. There's a lot of talk about trading him to possibly Milwaukee for Josh Hader, so that definitely uh, helps out the Yankees right now. Yeah, one thing I also wanted to take a look at, you guys both hit on who's going to replace him and the potential possibilities in that regard. I just want to think, how do you think, because you're putting guys like Montgomery and Garcia in the starting rotation, possibly may have to go with an opener? perhaps earlier in the season with Chad Green than you'd like. How do you see these two starters going down, impacting the bullpen? Oh, I mean, for sure. I think that it gives they, they're lucky they have the flexibility in their pen and the amount of guys. Uh, Chad Green has experience with it. I'm sure you, a couple other guys as well. Uh, something that also pops out to me, too, is think about how useful Domingo Herman would be right now. And obviously he's suspended for 60 games, is it? Yes. Yeah, so that that's a big loss as well. But the good news for them is there's a potential chance if if Severino is out that they're going to get him, uh, Paxton, yeah. and Herman back in the middle of the season for a big boost. I think they just got to make it through May and June or whenever it may be when those yeah. guys come back. Yeah, they're all due back around like June. Well, Domingo, he's eligible to come back June 3rd, and uh, Paxton's around the same time. So, um, yeah, definitely be a big boost in June. And I think they'll be fine. They'll be able to get through until then because Chad Green was fantastic last year. Um, I think the Yankees won their first 10 games when they used the opener. So I'm more than fine with using that again. 
Um, and like you said, we do have the flexibility to do it. And what's nice is you can throw it right after Cole because Cole, assuming that he is Garrett Cole from the last couple of years, will give you seven or eight innings per night. You're pretty confident with that. And then that rests your pen, and then you could throw the bullpen game the next day and then go with maybe Tanaka at that point who will eat up some innings as well and keep you in the ball game too as he's a great pitcher. Uh, but, yeah, at this point, everyone needs to stay healthy. I think the Yankees showed last year that they're a good enough team where even if guys do get hurt, even in the rotation, they'll be able to push for that American League East division. The Red Sox falling off a little bit helps them out too. But it's not what you want to see. But it's better now than September, I guess, if you want to look at it from the bright side. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, definitely a bright side to go through this now rather than in September. Obviously, you got spring training now able to give these guys – in time to develop and time to rest. Now, shifting gears, this is not a complete show if we don't talk about the Houston Astros and <laughs> relief pitcher Francis Martez has been suspended for the entire season for a second positive PED test. It seems like the Astros can't escape anything right now. How do you think this will impact an already distracted team? Well, I don't think Martez was a extremely extremely imperative piece to their outlook this season. However, it is pretty ironic given the fact that people want Bregman, Altuve, and so forth suspended for cheating, and then someone takes PEDs. And Rob Manford, I was imagining, he probably sees this report on his desk and is like, are you kidding me? Because he knows he's going to get so much grief from the entire Major League Baseball fan base for punishing this guy for taking PEDs and not the guys who cheated with the banging and the sign stealing and so forth, which a lot of players have come out and said that is worse than PEDs. Uh, but, you know, it's not a good look for the Astros. It adds on to the pile. Lucky enough for them, after losing Cole, it's not a Verlander or a McCullers or a, or someone like that getting suspended. So it could be worse for them. Or I, I shouldn't say that. It is pretty bad for them right now. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's very ironic. Also, one thing I wanted to add is that you really don't expect, you didn't expect this to happen for Houston. You think that they got enough going on, and then it's just another... Another thing they need to worry about also, it's just it adds more of a distraction or perhaps I could argue it adds a counter distraction from the elephant in the room. And because he's getting suspended for PEDs, it sort of takes a little not not a lot because it's a pretty minor transaction, but it sort of takes some of the attention for at least a day off of the fact that Altuve and Bregman are not suspended. Well, I mean, it's his second uh, violation, I believe, which is why it's 162 games that he's suspended. And for him, I mean, you know, I guess it could be worse if the Astros weren't cheating. Maybe it would have been more in the limelight. To be honest with you, not many people know the name Francis Martez, so I don't think it was going to be that big of a deal from the get-go. Something I do want to talk to you guys about in terms of suspensions is that I think is very interesting is that when a player is suspended for PEDs, he's not allowed to play in the postseason. However, if he's suspended for anything else, he's still allowed to play in the postseason. What do you guys think about that? I think that's a little, like, for example, Roberto Ozuna of the Astros, Mm -hmm. suspended for domestic violence, which in my opinion is far worse than performance-enhancing drugs, yet he's still allowed to play in the postseason. And the weird thing about it was is that he was suspended with the Blue Jays, then he becomes eligible again, and they trade him to the Astros, who are one of the best teams in the league, and all of a sudden he's punished, but because of that, is cheaper and is able to go to one of the best teams in the league and make a playoff run. I just, I, I don't think that makes sense to me at all. No, I agree with you. It doesn't make any sense, and maybe that's something that Manfred will consider in the future. Um, you know, obviously he's got a lot on his plate right now, but definitely for the other, um, the other offenses with cheating, domestic violence, and anything else, I do think that you should um, miss the postseason because, you know, it's only right, I think. 
Yeah, that's like what people are. That's what players are playing for. And if you take that away, that means a lot more to them. But it, it's frustrating, and I know it. I don't know how to explain it, but it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I personally think that the MLB should not treat the postseason separately because it's still, it's still the same season theoretically. They're still playing the same they games. Treated as more. The rosters are exactly the rosters are the same, and it's like I don't know. The closest thing I could come to this is if you like grant someone immunity. And like heal their body if they they tear their ACL and getting them back for the postseason. It seems like it, it in this case that it's two completely separate entities, two completely separate ball games. And I think that again, I think the suspensions should carry within the season, especially if they're allowed to carry over. And it, it, it's just you play. You could play the whole, or you could not play the whole season, but play the postseason. And in my opinion, it's still worth it. If you're if you're Roberto Ozuna in that situation. You won, whether he did it or not. I know there's a lot of questions in the air of whether he's guilty or not guilty. That's not what I'm talking about. Put that to the side for a second here. If he was punished and they found evidence that got him suspended, which is what happened, why are you rewarding him by making it easier for him to be traded because the salary is cheaper to go to the best team in the league and make a run for the World Series? doesn't make sense to me. And you can't, you can't, you have to, you have to, create a punishment that sets the precedent for players when this stuff goes through their head. And I know mental illness and everything like that is a completely different story. I'm not going to get into that. But maybe it will change some of it, maybe to an extent, if you say you're suspended, you're not going to get paid, and you can't play in the postseason. That really, in my opinion, from the get-go, that should already be set in stone, but it's not. I don't know why. Well, this is exactly, it's the childhood analogy of if you don't eat your dinner, you shouldn't get dessert. And, you know, if you don't eat your dinner, you don't play in the regular season because you're suspended, why yes. do you get your dessert in the postseason? Like, that just doesn't work out well in any case right now. It's like they're running right past the, you know, the broccoli and the asparagus going straight for the brownies. It's just, it does not make sense. But, yeah, he should be put in the timeout, sitting in his room for the whole entire <laughs> postseason, watching on his couch from TV, feeling guilty about himself so that he doesn't do it again and that if he ever sees it happening again, he stops it as well. But, no. I guess you get to go right to the postseason, skip the whole entire regular season. Yeah, speaking of someone who did sit in their, not necessarily their room, but in their in their house for the postseason last year, Brock Holt will look to continue <laughs> to avoid that with the Brewers as he has signed a current one-year $3.25 million contract with the Milwaukee Brewers in hopes that he doesn't have to sit on his couch during the postseason, during the 2020 season. What are your guys' thoughts on this considering the chaos of the NL Central right now. I like it's an interesting move to me. I had a lot of questions about it. Brock Holt, a good player and even better personality. Boston Red Sox fans are obviously very disappointed that he's not coming back. He was a fan favorite there. You know, I'm not going to argue this cuz it's completely wrong, but you know, I feel like almost losing Brock Holt hurt Red Sox fans more than it hurt Mookie Betts. That's not the case, <laughs> but they had a tight connection to Brock Holt and I know some Red Sox fans who were very sad. But looking at this Brewers team right now, they have a lot of infielders and a lot of infielders with versatility that they added this year. Ryan Healy can play first and third. Justin Smoke, first base. Jed Jerko, all the infield spots. Luis Urias from the Padres, third, shortstop, second. Then you have Brock Holt, excuse me, who plays every infield position and the outfield that you're paying $3 million. They have a lot, a lot of decisions to make during spring training this year. Given the fact that it's a major league contract for Holt that's worth $3 million, you got to imagine he's guaranteed a roster spot on opening day. 
However, I'm curious to see how they handle Haley, how they handle Logan Morrison, how they handle Justin Smoke, Eric Sogard, Jed Jerko, and so forth. That's a lot to a lot to move around, and there's going to be a lot of battles in spring training for the Brewers. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of battles in spring training. Another thing you have to look at is Craig Council really has not dealt with this kind of situation in his first year as a or not his first year, but in his young career as a Brewers manager, because he already had, already had a set lineup with Yelich, Braun, Kane. They pretty much were set pieces, especially with Aguilar there as well. Might I add that they add Abisail Garcia, which moves Ryan Braun potentially to first base. I don't. Under, it's like log jammed in the in the in Miller Park this year. I, I don't know why what they were thinking, especially. I mean, they sold Grisham and got Urias, which I was like, okay, that opens up a spot for Braun, Kane, Yelich to play every day. Then you get Urias to play out the middle, potentially maybe replace RC, excuse me. But now they have like what seems like 15 infielders that could start on an Major League Baseball team, and you're moving one of your best outfielders in Braun to first base, which makes it even harder. Yeah, well, in Milwaukee, you're kind of bound to have a logjam, considering the great state of Wisconsin does host the Lumberjack World Championships. But um, speaking of this, you mentioned the additions of Holt, and the log-jammed outfield. And infield. And infield as well. The one thing that Milwaukee doesn't have to worry about is the rotation right now, and you also have to look at how many players they lost there. Do you think that the, the front office of Milwaukee was thinking about sacrificing some rotation pieces to potentially add a piece like Holt in the offseason? Well, I sure hope not, because that is their biggest hole right now and it has been for the last few years or so i mean they made it to the championship series back in 2018 and the biggest issue for them was the fact that they could not rest josh Hader. they didn't have anyone who could go deep and they had to use Hader almost every day it seemed like and obviously he fatigued a little bit and you can't you can't rely on a guy that much and brandon woodruff was very good for them last year made the all-star game but got hurt, used him in the wild card game, was absolutely dominant. But to be honest with you, I don't know if they could have made it far past the division series if they did win that wild card game. Just because, look, the Nationals, one of the reasons why they were so successful in the postseason was because they were built for the postseason because of those starters that could go deep. Sanchez, even your four starter, can go deep. Then you got Corbin, Strasburg, and Scherzer and so forth. They did not have a good pen. But as long as they had Hudson and Doolittle working well as a tandem and they could have their starters go seven innings per night or so forth, they would rest those other guys in the pen, rely on Hudson and Doolittle, move them around a little bit, as we saw in the World Series. They didn't have a defined closer, if you really look at it in the World Series. They had Hudson coming in the seventh and eighth, and then Doolittle closing. They would flip-flop that, and it worked for them because their starters could go deep. The Milwaukee Brewers are on the complete opposite end of that, and they needed to add to that if they wanted to compete. And it's not what it's looking like. Yeah, now switching a little bit, moving down I-94. This is sort of my wheelhouse right here. The Cubs have announced that Chris Bryant will be potentially leading off for the Chicago Cubs in the 2020 campaign. My personal thoughts on this, I think it's a phenomenal move. I am very concerned with the strikeout rate, though. That's something that you don't want in the leadoff spot. However, David Ross is pretty much just pulling the three and four hitters up to one and two, which I think will provide a spark and make life a lot easier for the guys like Kyle Schwarber and Javier Baez by taking some pressure off of them, given that possibly the one and two hitters will do some damage. Maybe, you know, Schwarber and Baez, who swing for the fences every single time, 
maybe a little less pressure on them. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Yeah, I like it. It's a very Joe Madden-type move. I know he had Rizzo lead off a few times as well in the past. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. Bryant's only led off a game seven times, and he's two for six. So that's a small sample size. You never know. But the Cubs had a league-worst 294 on-base percentage from the leadoff spot and a 77 WRC+, plus, which is well below average, as 100 is the average. And so it's a good move. He's mixing things up a little bit. And Chris Bryant, maybe that could be a spark for them this season, especially with all the drama. By the way, talking about Bryant, did you see his press conference last week? That was amazing. I fell in love with Chris Bryant. There's been all this drama, and he's talking to Chicago about how don't listen to the media, listen to me. I'm here to stay. I love it here. And that made me have so much more respect for him. And if I'm a Cubs fan right now, I want to keep Chris Bryant. Absolutely. That's definitely what you want to hear from one of your star players. And touching on him leading off, I definitely like it. The Yankees have kind of toyed with that idea. They've um, had Aaron Judge lead off a couple times. And um, I think a couple of years ago, Jose Batista was leading off. Um, and, yeah, it's it's definitely a good move. And it shows that David Ross, the new manager, has confidence in one of his former teammates, wants to lead him off. They're not afraid to mix things up early on. Um, definitely like the move for the Cubs. Yeah, going off of that, I think it's a great, it's a phenomenal move. And I think also one thing that it will impact is it will sort of take the distraction off the fact that he is in a contract dispute in sort of that gray area, not in a contract year, but with all the grievance stuff like that. I think if he can show up and prove that he's a legit leadoff hitter, I also think this could be front office tactics, considering that if he can prove that he can hit from the leadoff spot or the flip side, if he proves that he cannot and struggles from hitting from the leadoff spot, that will increase or significantly decrease his trade value, so that might be a decision that Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer also made as well. Yeah, you mentioned the strikeouts and how those are up for him. It reminds me a lot of Jock Peterson with the Dodgers and how he leads off a lot for them. People don't worry about the strikeouts as much these days, especially given the fact if you get on base, Chris Bryant last year, 382 on base percentage. That's almost 100 points higher than their leadoff spot last year. I think this is a great move by David Ross. If he strikes out a lot, who cares? Because he still gets on base 38% of the time. I mean, our boys from Moneyball would love that. So it would be great. (laughs) Plus, you add some pop, get on base, set it up for the middle of that order with Rizzo and so forth. I like this move. And if it doesn't work, just move it back to the five spot and figure it out. It's okay. It's a good test, and it doesn't hurt anyone in this situation, especially for a Cubs team that needs to find a spark and for something to work out for them to be competitive in the National League Central. I agree, and he has... um, Obviously, he still does have a lot of strikeouts, 145 in 2019, but he has cut down. If you look, he's gone down um, from his rookie season. He had 199, led the league. Then... um, after that, 154, 128, 107, then he jumped back up to 145 in 2019. But definitely an improvement there. And still, obviously, you got to get that number down. But he uh, he has shown that he's improved to be in that leadoff spot. Yeah, moving on a little bit. It may be 19 degrees here in central New York, but I can guarantee you in Florida and Arizona, it is a beautiful day for a ball game down in those two states. And it is the opening weekend of spring training some games that to highlight, you got the Yankees versus Toronto at 105 Eastern. You got Jay Happ versus Trent Thornton. Tommy, what are your thoughts on that matchup heading into today? Very excited for the first game of the spring. Um, looking forward to seeing Jay Happ out there. He, um, he had a better month of September, 
And uh, like we said, the Yankees had talked about trading him, and then Brian Cashman said he's our fifth starter. Obviously, has paid off um, since the injuries of Luis Severino and James Paxton. Um, but it'll be good to see everybody out there. Um, not sure if we'll see Aaron Judge today. Aaron Boone hasn't said yet, um, but he has been dealing with that shoulder soreness, so maybe not today, but definitely get a good look at the team. Um, and you guys have games as well for the Cubs and Mariners. Yeah, we have what we call the Eddie Vedder Cup with the Mariners versus the San Diego Padres. That'll be a fun one. Former Yankee on the mound, Nestor Cortez Jr. versus Cal Quantrill for the Padres. Again, the young game, that's going to be the story for the Mariners this year. I'm excited to see that and get and see them get some opportunities. Last year on opening day, it was Jay Bruce, Edwin Encarnacion, Tim Beckham, and a bunch of veterans holding the fort for the young guys to come up. And now we're this is the time for the young guns, the prospects to come up and show what they got for the Mariners and get some experience and hopefully create a competitive team going into 2022, 2023, or whenever they are ready. Yeah, shifting focus to Mesa. The Cubs will play the nightcap tonight at 8-10. Cubs have Alec Mills on the hill. He was kind of a spot starter last year. He was okay. He came in for a couple spot starts the prior year and earned himself a spot on the wild card roster against the Colorado Rockies. So definitely some potential for Alec Mills, that fifth starter spot in that rotation. Definitely under some competition with Mills, Chatwood, and Alzale. So curious to see what they're going to do for that fifth spot. And I'm not surprised that they're going with Mills to open this on the hill for Oakland. A.J. Puck. It's a battle between the two Mesa teams. So definitely a matchup to keep our eye on. What a what a beautiful stadium the Cubs have too. It's in Oakland though in this one, right? Correct. This yeah. one is be at Sloan. Cubs oh, are home, Cubs home opener. Beautiful. That is the best spring. That that could be a. That's like better than any AAA stadiums. I feel like, <laughs> especially since they sell out that place all the time. At least they let the Mesa Solar Sox use their locker rooms. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we don't. We do not need to get into that. Anyway, uh, for me, the game that's more exciting than the Mariners game for me this afternoon has got to be. The Braves-Orioles as King Felix Hernandez is making his first start in a non-Mariners uniform as he's battling for that last rotation spot with the Atlanta Braves. I want to see him get this so bad. I want to see him bounce back, play a full year, stay healthy, and potentially pitch in the playoffs for the first time in his career. I feel like a lot of people would think, as a Mariners fan, I don't want to see him go to the playoffs, but no, it's the complete opposite. I'm so excited, and I hope he does well this afternoon, and that sparks a very, very successful campaign for him. Absolutely. And another interesting matchup is a World Series rematch tonight. The Houston Astros will host the Washington Nationals. And obviously that's interesting, even if they, if Houston wasn't playing the Nationals because of all that's occurred this offseason. But the Nationals are going to start their ace, Max Scherzer, tonight. Guys, what do you think about that? starting their ace against one of the most controversial teams in baseball right now. I think they're sending them a message because they truly, I think they want to expose Houston, even though it's spring training and Bregman and Correa and Altuve will probably be out by the third inning. But still, they like all these teams that we mentioned, they are starting their potential fifth starter or even a triple-A guy. I think the Washington Nationals want to send the Major League Baseball a message by starting their ace and absolutely shutting down the Houston offense. Do you think that there will be any retaliation, not just tonight, but this spring, or do you think that... No. Um, no? Not, I don't not. think so, because spring training, especially for pitchers, is all about getting your routine going and going from sitting on the couch in the offseason and working out in facilities to all of a sudden going out 
playing every fifth day. I think once the regular season starts, there's a good chance we do. But here, I think it's focused more on staying healthy. You don't want to see a guy getting hurt trying to retaliate on someone and so forth like that. And, again, anyone who's listening here, don't expect to see Max Scherzer throw more than two innings tonight or this afternoon. Uh, I do think that... You know, while it is it is flashy on paper, I don't think he's going to be pitching more than a couple innings tonight. Yeah, another thing is you also don't you pitchers don't want to get hurt. You also don't want to sort of expose the secret weapon. Not that it's so secret right now <laughs> that they're probably going to probably going to retaliate. But also, you don't want it's spring training. There's gamesmanship here. You don't want even you. You kind of want these guys to be ready for the regular, these Houston batters to be ready for the regular season. So then you can arguably truly expose, expose them and, you know, do what, do what you need to do for that. Speaking of the upcoming baseball season, we spoke with ESPN's Carl Ravitch to get his takes on the upcoming baseball season. Here's Carl. Mr. Ravitch, thank you so much for coming on with us today. It's my pleasure to be on. Happy to do anything that has to do with Ithaca College and sports broadcasting. My pleasure. There we go. We got to love it. So, speaking of sports broadcasting and you being someone who works in the media, with this offseason, with how dramatic it's been, has there has there ever been any offseason that's been comparable that you've been a part of? Uh, probably not. I mean, this is a unique set of circumstances. Um, certainly the sport has, has dealt with several black eyes before, I remember. After uh, getting out of Ithaca for a few years and then uh, bouncing around between Ithaca and Harrisburg and ending up at ESPN, going into 95 was kind of an odd year. Uh, no one really knew what to expect. And lo and behold, you know, McGuire and Sosa showed up, and that was kind of unique. Um, but this is, no, this is different. There's no question about it. And I think we're going to wait to see what the response is going to be from fan bases from other organizations from pitchers to Astros hitters etc cetera, etc cetera. and then we'll see you know how they're able to deal with with all the noise that comes with you know their cheating no for sure and something I was very curious about as a play-by-play man how would you go if you were getting that opening game with the Angels Astros I believe on opening day if you were to theoretically cover that game have you ever thought about how you would address a situation like this to the fans on TV uh, head on. I, I don't think there's, you know, there's not a lot of gray area here. There's not a lot of interpretation, um, you know, and it seems like the Astros are starting to acknowledge the fact that they cheated. And you'll go through a variety of stages if you're the Astros. You'll go through initial denial, then the disappointment in yourselves for doing it. Uh, then you'll, you'll question why you did it. Uh, you'll kind of get angry at yourself because you probably are sitting there second-guessing everything you've done or did or were exposed to and say, I didn't need to do a variety of stages. And, uh, you know, I think you address it head-on. I don't think you run from it. I'm sure that the fans uh, in New York, in Los Angeles, um, you know, wherever the Astros have seemingly sort of taken a bite out of a particular team, uh, the reaction will probably be even greater. But yeah, I think you just address you address it head on, and I think it's going to be a story wherever the Astros go, but perhaps throughout baseball, especially and you know early on, and I'm sure it'll raise a couple of uh, you know skeptical eyebrows about whether the commissioner's edicts will will be followed, or teams will try to figure out different ways to uh, manipulate, cheat the system to better themselves. So I'm sure. You know, baseball has been on shaky footing before when it comes to fans 
trust in the integrity of the game, and they're finding themselves, we are as a sport, challenged again. Now, Mr. Ravitch, when all of this broke, I went back to an interview that you conducted at the 2018 Winter Meetings um, between Aaron Boone, Alex Corr, and A.J. Hinch, and, you know, they were all praising each other about their managerial styles, and, um, you know, a lot of people from New York, obviously, and around the league think that the Yankees were cheated out of chances at championships by Houston and Boston. Where do you think those relationships stand today? Well, I mean, having spoken to uh, two of those three and kind of just haven't really gotten around to the third one, um, I would I would describe them as uh, as fractured. I would describe them as, uh, and certainly in the case of Aaron Boone, when you look at A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora, you know, Aaron Boone didn't, didn't do anything wrong. And if the Yankees have done anything wrong and that comes out, then he'll be in the same boat as the other guys. Um, but Aaron didn't do anything wrong. So, you know, I worked with both Aaron and Alex, and there, there's, a, there's a significant light bordering on, you know, brotherly love, if you would, between Aaron and Alex. And that's, you know, that's when, when somebody who you, who you really like, if not love, disappoints you, you're, you know, you're crestfallen, you're heartbroken. So I think for, for Aaron to look at A.J. Hinch, who he, I know, liked and respected at, at one point, uh, he's going to have to, A.J., rebuild that relationship. Uh, Alex is going to have to rebuild that relationship if, if he's interested in maintaining it. So, you know, the one guy who is sort of scorned here is Aaron because the other two, um, when they were with the Astros, you know, obviously were involved. You trust, especially guys you like and trust before this, to do the right thing. And uh, that wasn't what happened. Neither of those guys ended up doing the right thing. So you lose a lot of faith in those individuals, and I think the relationship has... The relationships have a long way to go to get back to where they once were. Could you see either of those two managing ever again in the future? Um, you know, without knowing the results of the Red Sox investigation, personally, I think they're going to find uh, very little relative to the Houston situation. Um, I can. I, I can certainly see both of them managing again. Um in the case of Hinch, he seems to have, at least during the process, you know, kind of taken the position that he wasn't in favor of it. He obviously didn't do near enough to stop it, but he wasn't in favor of it. And uh, breaking TV monitors at least is a, is a symbol or an example of somebody who doesn't like what's going on. So I, I think both of those guys, and I've heard so many people in the last 72 hours talk about they're good guys. That, that's 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 kind of mixing two different stories. They're good guys is one thing and should be put on a shelf. Uh, two of them were involved in a cheating scandal. The third one wasn't. I, I think those two will be able to because prior to their cheating uh, were very well respected. And I was with the Red Sox a couple of days after you know Cora was fired. Uh, the front office and the executives there are devastated. Uh, they had a, a great deal of respect for Alex and the way he did things in Boston. Now, if 
news comes out that says he cheated while he was there or did things like that. He, he won't manage again there, but this interim label on the current manager, Ron Renneke, I think the door is slightly open for Alex to return. Whether they want to get back into it, uh, I don't know, but I, I can certainly see both of them managing again. Yeah, so now shifting gears a little bit from the managerial standpoint to the front office, uh, Jim Crane and the rest of the Astros organization spoke for the first time on this issue. What were your reactions to what they had to say about this entire situation? Well, the beginning of it was an abject disaster. Uh, the, the statements that the players, Bregman and Altuve, read, and then uh, Mr. Crane's inability to articulate any type of contrition and suggest that 2017 cheating didn't have any impact on the game. And then he was at, when he was asked about the, the comment he just made, he said, I never said that when he literally had said it 15 seconds before, uh, was terrible. And I'm not sure that I'm, I'm getting from the owner of the Astros any indication uh, that he truly believes this team was wrong in what they did. Um, and perhaps a, a stiffer punishment may have may have woken him up to the fact that they really screwed up here. They cheated. Um, so that part was a disaster. Once they got inside the clubhouse and talked to the players, I think you could see more that they were remorseful, um, contrite, angry at themselves for doing what they did. Probably didn't realize that if this stuff ever got out, how big it would be, and perhaps uh, the painting of their own legacies for the rest of their careers and then post-playing baseball. So it went from being an abject uh, in a house fire to something more closely resembling what you would hope it would have been, which is we really messed up and we never should have done it and we are truly sorry for it. And we hope to you know, regain the trust of our own fans and baseball fans through, you know, through clean playing. But it was a disaster to begin with. Yeah, it was your colleague Marley Rivera who I'd say was the biggest highlight of that press conference, really hammering down Jim Crane. Could you tell me what your first reaction was when you heard that question and knowing that that's your own colleague that you're working with who really, I mean, was speaking what everyone thought at that press conference and was watching at home felt like? Yeah. I mean, Marley's fantastic at what she does. You know, and for any aspiring broadcaster, the most important thing I would tell anybody, and I've told people who who work with me and uh, those that are young in the business, the best thing you can do is listen to what is being said. She listened very closely to what Jim Crane said, uh, allowed it to kind of move around her brain and realize he was clearly, you know, out of his element in, in what he said. It was almost as if he wasn't thinking, he was just speaking. So she did a great job. The question needed to be asked. Uh, of course, you wouldn't cheat or continue to cheat if it wasn't having some positive result or impact. So what he said made no sense, and you needed to follow up with a question like that, and I'm glad she did. So turning gears from the Astros drama now to your career, something I was very interested in was what it's like to work with a colleague, for example, Aaron Boone on the air, and then he becomes a manager. Does that relationship change at all between you guys? And if so, how is it when you're interviewing him, getting information from him and so forth? Yeah, I think it changes a little bit. Um, you know, he, he went from being on our team at ESPN to being on the Yankees team. And obviously he's got things 
uh, information, uh, player conditioned, health, injury, etc. He needs to be somewhat protective of. You know, when he's working for us, he hopefully is an open book, and you can ask any question you want, and you're going to get an honest answer. When you're asking him about a particular player who might be in a slump, uh, he may be a little reluctant to exactly divulge what it is uh, that's causing that slump, other than to say, you know, he's tired, uh, he's a little banged up, when in fact somebody has something else that's far more serious that they don't want to uh, let other teams know about. But by the same token, the relationship allows you to have certain, I think, accesses that you wouldn't otherwise have, and to continue to talk to these guys, uh, text with these guys, you know, that relationship, that friendship is, is based on on trust. It's based on things that you need to have at a foundation level for the relationship to continue and know that you're not going to put the other person in, a, in an uncompromising position, but by the same token, have the respect to recognize that if a question needs to be asked, the question is going to be asked. Um, we, we would be remiss on our end just because we worked with them and have a relationship with them not to ask whatever question you know needs to be asked in that certain situation. Uh, so it, it, I think in the end, it, it probably works as a benefit because of the trust that you have in each other. Um, and in fact, you know whether it's Boone or Cora or Dusty Baker or Buck Showalter, I mean, the, the list of, of guys that I've worked with and sat next to who have who have gone on to manage Francona uh, is so long and so extensive that that relationship at ESPN has to be nurtured and literally rooted in trust so that when they are on the other side, uh, they trust me to do the job that I'm doing and not to have acts to grind and not to look for any type of special uh, consideration or treatment uh, from them. Now, talking more about your career, you've obviously had the opportunity to cover um, a lot of big moments from the winter meetings, the trade deadline, uh, postseason games, all-star games and home run derbies, opening days. Is there a particular moment that stands out to you that was your favorite to cover? Well, it's odd. I mean, um, you know, my favorite event is the Little League World Series. Um, but I would say that probably the most the most significant event that I covered was years ago when I was covering PGA Tour for us, and uh, I was with Tiger Woods, and he won the British Open at St. Andrews, and when he won the British Open, he then at that point had held all four of the major trophies at once, and I think it was the first time since Bobby Jones did that, and that was when the golf was actually on ABC, so I did the interview the first interview with Tiger Woods after he had held all four majors at the same time for ABC. And I'm guessing that, that as many people saw that as almost anything else I've done. Um, similarly, on a baseball scale, Monet Davis and what she did at the Little League World Series years ago became far more than just a sports story. That became a wildly uh, popular story that you saw Good Morning America and the Today Show and Nightly News and everybody was was into that. So if you're looking at just sort of sheer numbers when it came to the events that I've been on, you know, those, those were probably the two that had the most eyeballs on them. 
the home run derby is a blast every year and does really, really well ratings-wise. But I think the Tiger Woods thing was really unique because of the whole setting, what it meant, him being uh, an African-American golfer and doing what he was doing. And that was that was just in the middle of sort of Tiger mania on the golf course. He, he just couldn't lose. And he was destroying the field by 15 to 18 shots. He went through that that British Open at St. Andrews, and I think there's 106 bunkers on that golf course, and in four days, he didn't hit one. Uh, something that I came across on YouTube was a clip of you breaking the C.J. Wilson deal back at the winter meetings about <laughs> eight years ago, right. which was very cool to see on live TV. I was curious, uh, how often is it that you're in contact with different agents and sources to break news? And if so, what is that process like? I've always wondered what it's like, you know, when Passon or Rosenthal are breaking that news right. and where they get the information. Yeah, many of them have great relationships with agents, and I have good relationships with agents. I wouldn't describe them as great. I think a lot of times agents use uh, reporters to kind of get information out there when, in fact, there may not be all of it that's rooted in fact. That story was interesting because while we were at those meetings, I was actually going to the gym one morning, and there was this guy sitting outside on a bench, and it turns out he was the agent for C.J. Wilson. He wasn't a very well-known agent, but we struck up a conversation, and obviously C.J. was one of the big free agents at the time, and we kept talking and talking and texting and communicating, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he, he again, developed a... a trust in me. I didn't betray that during the course of those meetings and ever say, here's what C.J. Wilson is looking for. I just kind of sat on it. Um, and we were communicating throughout. And as soon as I saw his phone number, you know, light up on the phone, I assumed that it had to be significant news because the agent knew we were on television. So we're on TV. My phone lights up. And that was just one of those calculated risks. Why the hell not? Let's answer the phone. What's he going to say? We, we, he's going to tell me something. And as long as he knows we're live on television, we're, we're either going to get the news that there's an agreement or C.J. Wilson's going home without a contract right now. We're going to keep working. So that was a that was kind of a calculated risk. There was another example, I think, when Enrique Rojas, who is a good baseball reporter for us on ESPN Deportes and otherwise, I think, tweeted something out. And again... My faith in Enrique, my trust in Enrique, kind of went with just that tweet live on a baseball tonight. It turned out to be accurate. So you got, they're, they're, they're calculated risks. They're, they're, they're risks, but they're calculated. Yeah, so sh- sort of shifting from uh, past baseball, now sort of into the future, the MLB released new rules earlier this week specifically about the three batter rule for pitchers among the roster size changes. What are your thoughts on those specific rules? Well, in favor of anything that uh, increases urgency in the game, and we can get to the three pitcher, the three batter minimum in a minute, but I'm more focused on the playoffs and expanding those and having more elimination games and getting more teams in and keeping more fan bases interested I'm not generally in favor of rules that impact the strategy that's involved. I think you're, you're diving into where managers make a living. So I'm not hugely in favor of anything that changes that shifts. I, I would leave shifts alone because that's what teams want to do defensively. And you sh- I don't believe that we should be dictating what they do defensively. 
Um, by the same token, uh, you know, I've kind of died on the hill that every Major League Baseball game should be seven innings long. And I say that because I do think it increases urgency in the game. And I think if you were to come down from the moon and had never seen the game of baseball before, but you were you were kind of constrained in the idea that you needed to have a batter, you know, a bat, four balls, three strikes. Uh, I don't think anybody would make the regulation game nine innings long and take three hours. I think given the society we live in, they would, in fact, invent a game that lasts roughly – Two hours, an hour and a half to two hours, seven innings. Uh, innings four, five, and six become way more important, at least as they feel, relative to four, five, and six doing a nine-inning game. So I'm always about increasing urgency. Uh, I think we should have two 81-game seasons so that a team that may not be great for a full season, a 162, because they don't have uh, or aren't willing to spend the money that other teams are, you can keep the Pirates involved in a race. You can keep the Royals involved in a race if they have a good half. Um, so those, those are things that I would really focus on. And I'm, I'm somewhat uh, kind of a minority voice on those things. But that's, that's the direction I would go in. Yeah, so sort of making it similar to how the minor leagues do it nowadays. Now, another thing, you mentioned exactly. the postseason expansion. From your perspective, how do you think that will impact the television deals and stuff like that? More money, more money, more money. I mean, that's ultimately what Major League Baseball is interested in. And anytime you expand playoffs, you know, you're going to command a higher dollar from uh, whoever is bidding on it. And I think the whoever is bidding on it becomes sort of the greater mystery, whether it's, you know, ABC, ESPN, and Fox, and NBC, and CBS, or you are going to get into the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and who, who knows what other entity that wants to get involved in live sports broadcasting. But there's a great appeal, you know, in a world in which people stream and they fast-forward through commercials to have live programming. And sports is one of the few great live events left to cover. And that's why it's it's so wildly popular and far more popular, you know, when it comes to a playoff or deciding a championship as opposed to a regular season ballgame. So a lot more money. For sure. And then talking about Ithaca College a little bit, as I'm sure you know, Tim LaCastro had a great year with the Diamondbacks. Have you been able to talk to him yet, even broadcast some of his games? And if not, are you excited to? Do you plan on getting in contact with him anytime soon? Uh, I have not done a, a game with him yet. And, uh, of course, anytime that I get a chance to uh, see a bomber. I know George Valicente <laughs> just uh, shut it down a couple of years ago. And yeah. That was, a great, that was a great moment for Ithaca and a great moment for him, and I hope he gets the chance to enjoy his retirement. But, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a very, very big fan of the college baseball game and, and fortunate enough to do the College World Series. So, uh, That's yeah, what whether ICTV it's Division three uh, and a partiality to Ithaca or it's any other college game, I'm, I'm all in on it, and I can't wait to see Tim uh, at the major league level and have some, uh, have some great conversations about what it's like to hit the ball over the wall at South Hill. Yeah, so you mentioned South Hill and a lot of things Ithaca. What was what were some of your experiences like on the South Hills in Ithaca student? Well, I was lucky enough to do the, you know, at least back then it was called the Gridiron Report. I don't know if it still exists. It still but still was, is. Uh, still there. Well, there you go. I was lucky enough to, to be the sideline reporter my junior year and hosted my senior year and sit with Coach Jim Butterfield, who was, of course, a, a legend for so many years there and 
uh, yeah, that was really neat. That was a very high-level show that we did. It was very well produced. In fact, the guy that produced that is now producing Celtics games in Boston and has done that for years. His name is Paul Lucy. Um, wow. You know, like like every other every other class of graduates, you always look back and assume that you guys did it better than everybody else. We felt pretty good about the way we did things, and I, I hope you guys eventually feel great about the way you did things. But it was a it was a real high level, well produced uh, show, which certainly made me a lot uh, more marketable when I was coming out of Ithaca. And talking about Bombers football, what do you think of uh, bringing Cortica to a big stage this year at MetLife Stadium? I never thought it would be as big a success as it was. I, I think it was it, it exceeded certainly my expectations and um, was a tremendous source of pride for anybody that went to Ithaca or Cortland. I, I bump into people all the time, a, a lot more folks from Cortland uh, that I never would have known about. Uh, they have a, a really good athletic phys ed program, and i I keep bumping into them, whether it's on the college basketball court or the college baseball or the major leagues. Uh, yeah, it exceeded my expectations, boys. I never thought it would be what it was, and uh, it's a tribute to the alumni of both those schools and the foresight of somebody to come up with that idea. Yeah, I remember opening day last year, I was listening to the ESPN cast with Yankees Orioles. I remember like right after commercial break, you brought up Ithaca, and uh, that was when I had just accepted, which was super cool to hear. I'm just curious... <laughs> Is there anyone you stay in contact with from Ithaca, any colleagues that you still stay with in touch today that are in the broadcasting industry? Well, you'd be shocked at how many. Like, when we go do the home run derby, um, uh, there's, uh, I'll give you just some names. Mark Rose oversees our Major League Baseball coverage, Ithaca guy. Phil Orleans oversees the home run derby, Ithaca college guy. Scott Matthews produces the home run derby, Ithaca college guy. I call the home run derby, Ithaca College guy. Uh, there are a tremendous number of folks from Ithaca that are at ESPN, and uh, they are, they're all over the place. But uh, the home run derby alone uh, has those four significant figures, uh, all Ithaca graduates that are involved in it, and that is incredibly unique. I wish Ithaca took more advantage of it, but the entire home run derby is rooted in Ithaca College. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's something I haven't even realized, and I watch the Home Run Derby every every single year. Now, shifting our focus from Ithaca to the upcoming baseball season, what are your predictions for the 2020 MLB season? My predictions are that it's going to be a, um, a Dodger-Yankee sort of celebration for much of it. <laughs> I'm not necessarily sure that there's a team that can compete with either of those two. And if somebody were to offer me the field or the Dodgers and or Yankees to get to the World Series, I would take the Dodgers and or Yankees to get to the World Series over the field. That's how that's how strongly I feel about both of those teams now and their ability to make any decision or trade or transaction they need to to make sure that all the work they've done here to get to where they are will be rewarded with a trip to the World Series. Great. Mr. Ravitch, we thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you the best of luck this season, and we'll be listening. Thanks, boys. Go Bombers. Go Bombers. That was Carl Ravitch right there, and he mentioned in his baseball prediction that it will be a Dodger-Yankee celebration of baseball. Speaking of the L.A. Dodgers, we're now going to very briefly break down the NL West, which is pretty one-sided at this point, you know. I don't know who has the Dodgers in last out of the three of us, but we'll have to figure that out later. So, Max, what are your thoughts on the NL West? 
I mean, yeah, the Dodgers are winning this division, no doubt in my mind, which makes it a pretty underwhelming prediction, or excuse me, outlook here on the NL West. But I have Padres in second, D-backs in third, who were very underrated last year. I expect big things from them. And then Rockies in fourth, Giants slating out the five. I have the same exact thing. Definitely think that it's going to be the Dodgers um, here in 2020. Um, and I agree with Carl there about the Yankees as well. But um, definitely the Dodgers, especially after adding Mookie Betts, David Price, um, to an already very good team. Um, so definitely like them followed by the Padres with Manny Machado, um, Eric Hosmer, a lot of good players there. But I don't think it's going to be very close there, followed by the D-backs, the Rockies, and the Giants. Yeah, unlike Derek Jeter's Hall of Fame vote, we're going to be unanimous here. I, as well, have Dodgers, Padres, D-backs, Rockies, and then rounding out the Giants. I think the Dodgers, it's obvious. We could go on for decades about why they will win the division. They were a top team, and they added an MVP. I see no sign of them slowing down. San Diego in second, they are a very young team. They have veteran support in Manny Machado. They do they added Trent Grisham, even though he's more infamous than famous now because of what happened in that wild card game. They also have Will Myers, who's been pretty good. Drickson Profar, veteran support there, as well as Eric Hosmer, and arguably the best closer in the ball game in Kirby Yates. Arizona, they got a little bit better. They added Madison Baumgartner. Obviously, when you add an ace, that always helps, but I don't see him topping San Diego in this division. Colorado, people say they have Nolan Arenado. But he doesn't want to be there. The rest of the team is sort of in a rebuild stage. The pitching is not that strong. So that's why I have him finishing fourth. And the Giants, Bruce Bochy just left, you know, first year. Sort of a rebuild in San Francisco. So I see the the Giants sort of taking a step back this year and sort of refocusing their efforts from the early 2010 dynasty into the next Giants dynasty in the future. Yes, we also have my buddy Jared from Seattle visiting Ithaca this weekend. Jared, why don't you give us your National League West predictions? So I, I basically agree with all three of you for the most part, except I do have one slight change. So, of course, we have the Dodgers. I have the Dodgers winning the division. If they don't, that will be a story that will be people will be talking about for you know the next 10 years. But I actually have Arizona staying in second place in the division, and that is simply because of what Matt already mentioned, which was Madison Bumgarner. I think that is a huge addition, and there's no reason why adding Madison Bumgarner will get you less wins than 85, which they had last year. That doesn't make—that's the only part that I disagree with. The only thing I would say is that the Padres are better— so they had a bad Padres team to play, and that gave them more wins. Yeah, the Padres are better, but I do think that the, Diamond ba- the Diamondbacks are better as well, so— We'll see. And the Diamondbacks have Tim LaCastro leading hit by pitches <laughs> from Ithaca College. <laughs> you know what? Tim LaCastro is going to lead them to this division uh, win over the Dodgers. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah, but in all seriousness, one, two additions that we actually forgot in Arizona are Starling Marte and Cole Calhoun. Those are two. Marte will be very good. Those are yeah. two very good players. However, will Starling Marte be able? How will he blend in? He played in Pittsburgh his entire career, and it's a completely different environment in Arizona. Got the Marte tandem with Cattell and Starlin. I like that. Yeah, with the Marte-Marte the uh, combo right there. I think Arizona, there's no reason why Arizona should do, should do worse than last year. I love Starling Marte. I think he's a good player. I also think he's a great defender as well. He's just going to be a great asset to the team overall. But I think that after that, I do think the Padres would follow in third place if that's any. And then you got Rockies-Giants in the bottom four or five? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. 
Yeah, one more thing about that about this is that you also have to think about that San Diego added Zach Davies as well as I love that movie. Tommy Pham from Tampa Bay. They are enhancing this rotation. They are enhancing this offense. You, Tommy Pham, he's an emotional player that will definitely make something happen in San Diego. That's why, again, it was a very tough decision, but San Diego over Arizona for me. See, the only the only reason I disagree with that is I just don't see San Diego's rotation, you know, getting them really far in this season. I, I mean... It's young. It's young. I'll give you that. I like I like Quantrill. I know he's pitching But then today. again, we're arguing for second place, so I don't think either of these... I mean, the, I the Dumbbacks could push for a wild card Yeah, spot. they could be a wild card team, Maybe. potentially. Maybe. I, I just... The, I think that... Diamondbacks have a better rotation. Ooh. They added more. Padres adding Emilio Pagan is quite the move. I love that move. Emilio Pagan has not played on one team for more than two years. He's been with the, the Mariners, the A's, the Rays, now traded to the Padres in his last four years. And he's been absolutely fantastic. One of the best underrated bullpen pieces in the game. That's a nice move. But, yeah, you're right. Lamette, Paddock, all very young. Garrett Richards, can he stay healthy? Davies, very nice move, as Matt mentioned. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, it's going to be a tight battle for second place in the National League West. Well, that's going to do it for our show this morning. Follow us on social media at On The Mound VIC on Instagram and Twitter. Again, thank you for joining us On The Mound. We'll be here next and every Saturday at 8 Eastern. Next up is Every Dude's Fantasy. Thank you for listening to On The Mound on VIC Radio.